Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm, it gives me great pleasure to be able to uh, host uh, such a prestigious speaker as Professor Galtung tonight for the Grimshaw Club. Um, I'd like to thank the IR department and the annual fund for helping to fund our continual events, um, but specifically the IR department for helping to us arrange this, and to Dr. Karen Smith, who uh, has kindly agreed to come and chair it at the very last minute um, and help us there because uh, she's a reader in international relations, part of the EU Institute here and ECU policy uh, uh, department. So it's great to have her to come and share it. Um, The Grimshaw Club is the oldest student union uh, society here at the LSE. Um, We were originally named after an academic who died uh, dramatically by overworking for the League of Nations. Um, I'm not sure what that leaves us to think on or how we should work at the LSE. We we run a selection of speaker events like this, coffee mornings um, and socials. um, And finally, we run trips uh, where we've been already this year to Morocco and Oslo, where they even visited uh, uh, Professor Galtung's uh, Peace Research Institute in Oslo. um, And we're happy to work with his work there. We've got trips at the moment that are being sent to Vienna and to Turkey and Cyprus to look at the EU membership there. Um, which are open to applications, so please come and join us. Um, And finally, just to say thank you to everyone here for coming this evening um, and to invite you in the tradition of all good uh, student societies to come and join us for a drink afterwards um, because we have a reception up in the senior dining room um, on the fifth floor of this building, so I hope you come and join us there. And in return, I would just ask you one small thing in that you turn off your mobile phones so we don't get disturbed and that you enjoy the lecture that you have here tonight. Thank you very much. Right. My name is uh, Karen Smith from the International uh, Relations Department, but as uh, he just uh, noted, I am also a Europeanist. And one of the very many books that Johann Galtung wrote, has written in his life, um, was a book in 1973 called A European Community, A Superpower in the Making. And it continues 30 plus years later to be a key reference point in the literature, something which one cannot say of much social science literature that is produced, certainly uh, in uh, contemporary uh, times. Now, Johann uh, Galtung is a uh, very famous uh, peace uh, activist and uh, researcher. As uh, was just uh, mentioned, he founded uh, the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, PRIO, for which several LSE graduates have worked in the past. Uh, so uh, that is something, I think, to, um, uh, to aspire to. Uh, he is uh, currently the founder and director of Transcend, Uh, which is a peace and development network for conflict uh, transformation by peaceful means, which has more than 300 members from over 80 uh, countries. And as such, then, he has been very active uh, in uh, developing uh, this uh, approach uh, to peace uh, and has written, for example, uh, a report for uh, the United Nations Manual for Trainers, which is called Conflict Conflict Transformation by Peaceful Means, the Transcend uh, Approach. Uh, He uh, has also uh, founded something called the Journal of Peace uh, Research uh, in 1964 and co-launched the Nordic Institute uh, for Peace Research in uh, 2000. So extremely uh, active uh, both in the practice uh, and in the research of um, uh, peace uh, studies. And we are very uh, privileged uh, to be able to hear him tonight talking about six conflicts in search of solutions. Professor Galton.
Thank you so much, Karen. Dear friends, you will be in for a tough lecture, one hour. And um, don't think there will be a manuscript afterwards. So let me immediately start by telling you which are the six conflicts that I have selected for this particular evening. There's one economic, one particularly military, one political, one cultural, one social, and one environmental. Let me first give you the brief names of the conflicts, and then the definitions, and I see them, and then the solutions, as I see it. And then, after all that have been done in about 15 minutes' time, we'll start working. So the first one is global capitalism, which of course is linked originally to colonialism and imperialism. Colonialism and imperialism differed in the sense that colonialism was an expansion of the mother country territorially with flags and everything. Imperialism is more structural. The second one is terrorism against state terrorism. Military. The political one is states against nations. State being a territorial concept, nation being a cultural concept. The fourth one, the cultural one, is Islam versus Christianity. Both of them global religions, in fact the only ones. The fifth one is social, men against women. And number six is humans against nature. So now they have been named. In the beginning was the name. Now we look at the definitions. In order to define a conflict, we need three things. We need to know which are the parties. What are their goals? And where are the clashes? The definition of conflict is not the Anglo-American one. The definition of conflict is incompatible goals. Not incompatible actors, but incompatible goals. That gives more leeway becomes less a question of controlling one of them, usually the other, and more a question of solving the puzzle if you have incompatible goals. How can you nevertheless make it work? The definition of capitalism is essentially three parties, the rich in the rich countries against the poor in the poor countries, via the rich in the poor countries and the poor in the rich countries. It's a tripartite setup for the systematic transportation of wealth from the bottom to the top. You may not know it, but at the top now, there is a very basic problem now how to spend the liquidity accumulated. And one solution, which is a new one, is to buy your private submarine. And other one is to try to launch a hotel in outer space. There are about 100 private submarines plying the oceans deep down. So if you want to invite your friends for a real deal, invite them into your private submarine. If you don't make it to that one, you haven't made it, my friends. <laughs> you may call this a school of economics as much as you want. It obviously didn't help you very much. Now, the incompatibility 
is between submarines and dying of hunger and preventable and curable diseases. 125,000 dying per day, per day 25,000 of hunger. The definition of terrorism, state terrorism, is a conflict between two types of violence and the victims. And the victims share one important characteristic, they are civilians. The masters in state terrorism are the Anglo-Americans. The real true theoretician and practitioner was Ted Harris, who has a monument in this town. If once you have a realistic view of it, uh, that monument will be torn down. Those who started it was the Italians bombing, killing men, but mainly women and children in oases in Libya in 1911. And this was actually one of the events that inspired Ted Harris as a young man. So it means using the military to kill civilians. Terrorism is using civilians to kill civilians. War is using military to kill military. And guerrilla is using civilians to kill military. Now what will favor these four modes of exercising violence? Well, military-military came out of caste traditional society and became very overpowering and very overwhelming. And the first challenge was against Napoleon in 1806 in Spain with the guerrilla. But the challenge today is much more important. So why do you think we have terrorism? We have terrorism as defense against armies and as a fence against state terrorism, and as other ways of trying to promote politics by violent means. In other words, the stronger the armies, the more terrorism have they engendered. And the terrorism is the genuine grandchild of British punitive expeditions, of which there were about 200 to the empire, and the U.S. 243 military interventions since Thomas Jefferson started in 1805, 73 of them after the Second World War, the last ones being Haiti and Somalia, and of course Iraq, Afghanistan. An overwhelming military power which dialectically engenders its opposite. To believe that anything is the end of history, you have to be Western. If you are wise, you will know there is something called dialectics, that anything engenders its opposite. It is not necessarily Newtonian in the sense that it has exactly the same size and is opposite directed, but it is contrary. And that makes you ask the question, terrorism, what is the child, the offspring of terrorism? Well, it is, of course, a police state. It's state, police state, fascistization. And today's news told you very clearly that the U.S. is of the opinion that Europe has to go much further in that direction, since this is the so-called launching platform. Now, number three, there are 200 states in the world and 2,000 nations. That means an average of 10 nations per state. In United Kingdom, you have 
let us say. Ulster, Scotland, Welsh. You have Shetland, the Orkneys, the Hebrides. Isle of Man, Isle of White, and London with surroundings. Some of those surroundings extend a little bit towards the others. In other words, you have nine components in the United Kingdom. You will hear from all of them if you haven't heard from them yet. Every single one of them. If you look at Spain as an example, you have the Basques and the Catalans, the Galicians, the Canaries, the Balears, and the Andalusians. Then you have Madrid with surroundings. Seven. If you look at Russia, you have about 21. You can get, depending on how you count it, about the same figure in China. And so on. The 2,000 are differently divided. But of the 200 states, only 20 are nation states. The 180 have more than one nation. There are multi-nation states. Of those 180, maximum four have solved the problem. What's the problem? Equity among the nations. No dominant nation. I think you know which nation is dominant in the United Kingdom. In Switzerland, it is not the German speaking. They understood the trick before the others. Islam, Christianity are both singularist universalist religions that are of the opinion that they harbor the only truth, the single truth, and it's universal for the whole world, not only today, but forever. Now, both of those assumptions are a little bit grandiose. And if you have two of them running the world at the same time, you have a problem. Now, that problem increases when the means of transportation and communication increase so that we come closer to each other. They are today at a very high level, as we know very well. In the old days, when the Muslims were focusing on sand and the Christians on the temperate zone, the skirmishes were less and fewer. When you then come to man versus woman you have the most massive category killing genocide in the world that Amartya Sen discovered in the 1990 comparing the census data from the UN for 1990 with 1980 discovering that 180 100 million women had disappeared they were aborted they were killed through direct violence because they didn't bring sufficient money into the marriage. They were overworked. They were killed in infanticide. I define genocide as massive category killing. This was the worst one. You have man nature. The pollution by means of CO2, NOx, sulfur, of the atmosphere and partly the waters is well known. The depletion is today mainly known as peak oil. And all of that is important. I would like to call the attention to another important factor. If the major consumer of fossil fuels, namely the United States, has little of it on its own territory, 
so as to get it from somebody else. If it depends very much on that in order to maintain its way of life, as they say, imperialism is almost inevitable. In other words, it means controlling a number of states. United States, like United Kingdom, is against the military junta in Myanmar. There are good reasons for that. I haven't heard them being very much against a dictatorship that is much worse, namely Algeria. Much, much worse. Why not? Because they're given U.S. access to the oil in the south. And because the Algerian government is so much against terrorism that they even instructed their own soldiers to do the killing as if they were terrorists. As has been revealed again and again. Much worse than Myanmar. Myanmar is bad enough. In other words, we have a problem of inequity in the energy resource distribution. So the goal is not only to reduce global warming, but to increase the equity in production of energy. You could imagine a world where each part of the world was equally able to produce energy per capita without leaving an ecological destructive footprint. Let me now turn to solutions. The solution to capitalism, which I think was clear to very many some time ago, was decoupling. You opt out of the vertical division of labor. You simply opt out of the idea that we are providers of raw materials and you do the processing. The more dramatic decoupling would be we decouple completely we establish our own economic system. Now, if you look at the trade figures in the world, you will, of course, see that the major economic powers today are China and India. In terms of growth, the two countries together, being totally able to supply all the industrial goods the world might possibly consume, leaving to the West some very exquisite watches from Switzerland. Exactly what England would do is not even clear to me because the watches are not even known, the English watches. What is known is Greenwich Mean Time, but not the instrument to measure it. So having said that, the solution is to some extent at hand, but that's at the state level. How about poverty? Well, for poverty and for the inequities, for the gaps arising under capitalism inside a country and for the lack of harmony, the gaps between regions and for the lack of democracy because so much of the power is in the hands of the money holders. I know no better document and no better theory, it remains to see the practice, than President Hu Jintao's speech to the 17th Congress of the Communist Party of China. And that was, as you don't know, relatively recently, in October, I have read the British press account of it. It is absolutely impossible to understand what he said from the English media. I can guarantee you there is absolutely no way you can even guess at what he said because the aggressive comments come out immediately. But I'm just saying that there is then the president of the major country in the world in his way trying to come to grips with these three, with 26 measures. But I'd like to add one more. 
I'd like to add one more. People die, they don't have money to buy the food. They have enough money for the last cigarette and the last bottle of Coca-Cola. So let's imagine you have that poor Indian woman, rural woman in Chiapas in Mexico, whose daughter is coughing. And there is blood in the spittle. She has a couple of pesos and has to make a choice between lunch for the family or visiting a doctor. Now, this is the utmost indecency to force a person to have a choice between two basic needs. She may have been intoxicated by somebody who talks about Darwinism and says, look, your daughter, unfortunately, evidently is not very fit. So if she doesn't survive, there is a message from nature in that one. It used to be a message from God. Darwin converted it into a message from nature. And don't give the blame for that to Herbert Spencer. You find it in Darwin himself. Survival of the Fittest, and please read the subtitle of the book, The Origin of Species. The subtitle is An On the Preservation of the Fittest Races. I don't think he didn't think of his own. Now, how do you handle that problem? Create jobs. Okay, try that. They'll try that for about four or five hundred years, and it gets worse and worse. So here's one formula, which is tried a couple of places in the world. That woman has been babysitting three nights before with people who are equally poor, but to give her a chit of paper saying that she has spent 15 hours work. She collects some papers of that kind. And then some doctors sign up and say, we accept those chits. We accept laborism instead of capitalism, workism instead of moneyism. Not a whole week, but I'd say three days a week. And I then take those sheets of paper, and when my car needs service in the garage, I pay for that. And the garage mechanic hands it on to somebody who teaches English in a Spanish-speaking district and a number of other languages. And that jit is rotating, like money does. And the idea would then be that one hour equals one hour, whether you are a professor of peace studies or a cleaning lady. One hour equals one hour. Why do I say that? Because one human life equals one human life. And if you divide human life into number of years and hours, you can calculate yourself how much time it takes you to become a millionaire. I can only tell you that to become an hour millionaire, keeping good shape. Keeping good shape. There are certain ways of doing that. I'll not go into it. The point I'm making is we are intoxicated with money. Absolutely obsessed with it. To the point that we forget that we ourselves are the creators of that. And it's hours of human work that create it. And we can exchange those hours. We do it when we have parties. We do it often in barter. We do it as a matter of fact very often. We can do it much more broadly. 
In no way am I saying that one should abolish monism, but one should only see it as one. So redefining the division of labor, distribution, 26 measure, decoupling, workism, and you have a lot. How do you handle terrorism, state terrorism? Well, for heaven's sake, try to find out what the underlying conflict is and solve it. It isn't so fantastically difficult to understand. If you're hit by somebody who commits suicide and takes a couple of people with them by hitting a building with two towers and a Pentagon-shaped building in Washington, you don't have to be super intelligent in order to get at the guess that those guys have something against economic and military power. I mean, no super IQ is needed for that. So, I remember I was asked that question. Not 9-11, but 9-12, and I said that. But I said, I don't know exactly what. Because I don't know who did it. Well, the moment we were told about 19 young Arabs, 15 of them from Saudi Arabia, click. What happened? Well, in 1945, Roosevelt and Ibn Saud signed a treaty. And the treaty was about oil. Point number one, practically speaking, unlimited access. Point number two, the obligation of the U.S. Army to defend the royal family against its own people. Now, that's heady stuff. And you have to look into why that was. You had no official thinking of that type. Nothing at all. It was considered almost treason to see this event as caused by a causal chain in which the U.S. also had played a role. And that habit of non-thinking was carried over wholesale by the United Kingdom when it hit, not 9-11, but 7-7. Not 2001, but 2005. In other words, we have nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. Well, have a little look at the history of Western assault on the Arabic Islamic world. Have a look at what happened in Mysore in 1798 when the British soldiers were attacking the uppity, unashamed head of Mysore, Muslim of course. At the same year as Napoleon attacked Egypt and installed himself as Sultan el-Kabir, the big sultan of Egypt, in order to teach the Egyptians and the Muslim civilization. He was chased out in 1803. He took the Sepoy mutiny, where one of the major oppressors is still celebrated at Trafalgar Square, and a whole Gandhi in order to have the British leave. Just look at that sordid history, and you will just say that the sins of the fathers come back in a couple of generations. In other words, these were not uncaused events, and a certain amount of blindness is needed to introduce the term evil. There is no evil in the world. 
There is no devil possessing us. There are intractable, difficult conflicts that have to be faced head on. That applies also to Iraq and Afghanistan. In our discussion afterwards, I'll be happy to present some views, but I'll say something about how to solve 9-11 and 7-7. It was done by a European statesman who did it brilliantly, who 11th of March 2004 was exposed to exactly the same thing, the bombing of the Madrid trains. His name was Zapatero. The word in Spanish means shoemaker. And he was probably measuring the size of the feet and somehow coming up with the right number. So he did four things. Where Bush and Blair not only did zero, but made it worse. So what were the four things he did? And again, I've been scanning UK press to try to find whether somebody ever put those four things together for you so that you could have a source of inspiration. Point one, he pulled out the troops from Iraq. And he has disguised in his talks a sentence to the effect. It was not only to save Spanish life, Spaniards from being killed, but to save the Spaniards from killing others, which may be more important. Point two, when it was clear they were Moroccans, just as clear that it was clear that Muslims were behind the Twin Towers and Pentagon. And the U.S. response was highly predictable. Bomb a Muslim country far away, too far away to retaliate directly. He visited Rabat for an audience with the king to discuss all problems. Nothing of that type has happened with U.S.-U.K. Point three. He legalized close to half a million Moroccan illegal workers in Spain, provided they could show and prove that they had a job. Point four. He organized an alliance of civilizations for dialogue West-Islam. Starting 28 October 2005, I was one of the participants remember it as a fantastic event. It was so successful that the media didn't write one word. It passed the test. If the media write about it, you know something went wrong. This was a success. Nobody writes about a success. We have terrible media. Major factors in contributing to violence, not because they write about violence, but because they don't write about the opposite. That's the point. So I have indicated that solutions exist not only in theory, but in practice. Now, how do you solve Islam Christianity? Tolerance is not good enough. Tolerance is passive coexistence. I am so grandiose that I permit that you exist. You really don't deserve it, but I permit it. Applause, applause, please. Dialogue is better. Could it be that you have a truth that is missing in my collection of truths? I have been facilitator for not a few dialogues between Christians and Muslims. 
And I usually ask the same two questions of both of them. What is it you are most afraid of in the other party and what is it you like most? So when I ask the most afraid question, the Christians say, we are afraid of jihad. Which they think means holy war, it doesn't. But the fourth stage of jihad is defensive war. According to the Quran, as you know, you cannot spread Islam by the tip of the sword, but you are obliged to defend it. There are 1.3 million Muslims, which means that in Afghanistan and Iraq, the West stands up against 1.3 billion enemies. As Muslims, they have certain obligations. 1.3 billion is a little bit much compared it to those small countries called US and UK. Now, the second, when you directed to the Muslims, yes, we are afraid of holy war. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine. And it seems that the Western world is particularly holy when it is against Muslims. It's the tradition. So when I then turn to the Muslims and say, what is it you like about Christianity? I almost always get the same answer. Diversity. The number of Christianities. You can not only find one, you can even create your own. Sometimes, don't do it too publicly, keep it a little bit hidden, but it's okay. You can be a Protestant, inside Protestants, inside Protestants, inside Protestants. Try that one in Islam and you may get into problems. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not different wings of Islam. For instance, the state religion of Saudi Arabia, Wahhabism, which is essential for understanding 9-11, is one example. But that diversity we would like to see. Then I ask the Christians, what is it that attracts you particularly in Islam? And I get no answer. I try to find out then, is that because they find the whole thing repulsive? No. They don't know anything at all. They have never taken the job of sitting down and reading something. They are just ignorant, illiterates. Shame. How many people in the Western world know Surah 861? When your enemy inclines toward peace, you shall do the same. Does not exist in the Bible. Turning the other cheek is non-retaliation. It is not creating a virtuous cycle of peace. Well, much can be said about that. The lack of knowledge is astounding in a civilization that has more universities, more PhDs than any time in human history. So, it's a question of dialogue. Could it be that you have a truth that I don't have, the exchange of truths? And beyond that is, of course, a much more dramatic solution. Not only symbiosis, but could the synthesis of religions be possible? Could we globalize God? If we globalize stock exchanges, why can't we globalize religions too by picking the best from all of them, for instance? I have made some formulas of that type, and I can tell one of them in possible debate. You see, the point is that here one has to get into new ways of thinking. This is dramatic. So, men, women. The problem has partly been solved. 
And do you know what the solution was? Ultrasound is forbidden in India and China in order to determine the gender of the fetus. And India and China were the worst ones. It was not any brilliant political formula or social science thing. It's a purely engineering solution. Now this is fascinating. There's something to learn from that. Maybe social scientists should understand that there is a world outside social science. I'm not saying it is totally solved. Infanticide continues, but by far the major portion was abortion. And that abortion had a gender stamp on it. Now, man nature. I do not belong to those who are convinced that it is all man-made, the global warming. There is a process going on from the end of the Ice Age with the melting of glaciers started thousands and thousands of years ago. Whether that is done to the spinning of the Earth or increased fusion in the nucleus of the Sun and so on are debatable issues. When the oceans heat up, CO2 is released. It is not only that when humans produce more CO2, oceans heat up. It could be both ways causation, mutual causation. When I ask the specialists in this, how much is man-made and how much is natural history? The answers I have been given from how much is man-made varies from 99% to 3%. These people are called scientists. Now, if it had been between 55% and 52%, I'm willing to tolerate that. But if we social scientists could operate with such factors, I think we would be correctly doomed out of court very quickly. Ladies and gentlemen, we are treated to some humbug in this field. I don't know exactly its nature. I'm not in any way belittling the phenomenon, nor am I saying that if human-made global warming is on the top of the, literally speaking, sinking iceberg, that we shouldn't do something. I'm just saying I would like to know the answer. And I think I'm entitled to know it, because I have a horrible hunch somewhere. And my horrible hunch is this. But after a couple of years, we will get propaganda as never before for nuclear power. These people are well organized, they know what to do. It's interesting to read what Al Gore did as a vice president, but I'll not share that with you, that you can find yourself. And it's interesting. In other words, the diagnosis of what is happening here is not that clear. So, let me now say that I have indicated a couple of solutions. Let us go backward. I am very much convinced that switching to non-fossil fuels is a good idea. And there are some six, seven, eight alternative ways of converting energy that are much less depleting and almost not polluting. Nuclear energy being one of them. But it carries in its wake the police state 
that was a major factor in connection with conflict number two. In other words, the solution feeds it from one can feed into the conflict of another. Which then brings up what will be the topic for the remaining minutes, namely the relations among the conflicts. But let me first just backward go through the solutions. Of course it is alternative energy profiles. And the poorest countries in the world have the best access to energy of everybody, the sunshine. Try a solar collector in Norway, my country. Try it in Kerala or Chiapas. Try a little box with black paper at the bottom of the box. A casserole with water in the middle and glass plate on top of it. And your rice is cooked within 20 to 40 minutes. Try that one in Norway. Won't bring you very far. Now God was so good that God gave us oil to compensate for the missing sunshine. And we had the guy who in negotiations with the English diplomats in the 1950s said, we Norwegians are actually only entitled to a very narrow strip because there is a depth of the water down to more than 400 meters and that defines a new territory. But our geological investigations have shown us there is no oil in the North Sea. So we assume the British will be gentlemen enough to use the midline principle and disregard that. And the British were gentlemanly. So that's the way we got most of the North Sea, for your information. I can tell you a lot of stories like that. It's just a question of whom you know. And I know a lot of people, and they usually come to me and say, Professor Galtung, I really shouldn't tell you this. And I put on that innocent face, no, of course you really shouldn't tell me. However, that's wrong. Now, having said that, the equitable energy profile is a major world goal. A major world goal to see to it that the system not only doesn't deplete and pollute, but doesn't create inequities. And if you depend for your energy consumption on places far away, chances are that you will set up the military and political and economic and cultural and social encumbrances in order to guarantee it. And thereby you dig your own grave, beloved U.S. Empire. But that's the topic for tomorrow at Oxford. So I'm not going into that now. I have said ultrasound was useful. And I have said bringing the religions together. How about picking the best from all of them? How about taking the sacred books and you will find gems glittering in all of them? including the non-sacred secular books. Humankind is very bright, has very many good ideas. Nobody should tell you, you, can, you cannot pick only the good, you have to take the shit too. And nobody should be entitled to tell you that you cannot mix from different religions. Be your own master. The French say, je prends mon bien ou je le trouve. I take what is good for me where I find it. It's not always that the French take it. They sometimes steal it too. But anyhow, the different ways of doing it. The obvious solution to the state-nation problem is federation and confederation. 
federalism is not taught at UK universities. Federalism is an F word. Because federalism applied to the British Isles would mean degradation of London. The word that the English like is the word union. Like in Union Jack, <coughs> United Kingdom, Manchester United, <laughs> things of that type. But not Manchester Federal. Not the Federal Jack, whatever that would be. And yet, if the United Kingdom of Ireland and Great Britain in 1801 had been a federation, you would have saved yourselves an enormous amount of lives at trouble. The four countries I sort of indicated are Switzerland, Belgium without India and Malaysia, where nations are more similar in power. I indicated the Spanish solution to 9-11 and I indicated for global capitalism a decoupling that has already happened and it's already turning the world slowly upside down. I'm only praying to the gods, I believe in them, many of them. China, India, be so kind. Don't treat the West the way the West treated you. Be so kind. We don't quite deserve it. And a couple of apologies from the West might come handy, but be so kind. Could you? Now, what is the relation between these six conflicts? Well, <coughs> I have, of course, my little sheet, but I'll just indicate it to you. They feed into each other and support each other. It's what we call a conflict molecule. So a conflict molecule... They are tied together by having the same parties or the same goals or more or less identical clashes. And to say that you take capitalism, the rich, against the poor. Now, very many of those submarine candidates live in countries that are also exercising state terrorism. I mentioned that US-UK are the masters and the most important examples of state terrorism were of course the terror bombing of Germany and Japan during the Second World War. And I'm saying all the time the mature way of approaching conflicts is to try to solve them. There could have been ways. I'll just indicate one for you. Just one. Imagine that in 1924 the Allies had said we have reviewed the Second Versailles Treaty of 1919 and come to the conclusion it is not a good treaty. We are willing to build it down to zero over a period of five years. We are willing to have major amendments. We might even discuss the option of dropping it. So imagine the Allies had said that because there were such proposals. Hitler would have been deprived of his best argument and would not have won. The Weimar Republic would have had problems. Six million Jewish lives would have been saved. Twenty-eight million Russian lives would have been saved. The war in Japan in the Pacific would have come nonetheless. 
But in that case, you could imagine a declaration in 1931 from the West when they heard what the Japanese said. We have to be big and strong in order to push the West out of the East. Asia for Asians. What they meant was, of course, Asia for Japan. It's not acceptable. But Asia for Asians was legitimate. Asia for the West was not acceptable. Well, if the West at that point had had the courage, the intelligence, the wisdom to do what Lord Keynes did with the economic thing, the incredible breaking of taboo of having the state come in with anti-conjunctural work, simply declared, yes, we will dismantle Western colonialism over the period of 10 years. There would have been no war. Does that mean that I say the West is guilty? No. I just say we all share responsibility. And one of the worst ways of infracting the rule of responsibility is not to attend decently to conflict resolution. That requires skill and insight and courage. Now, global capitalism plays into terrorism, state terrorism. It plays into Islam Christianity in a very interesting way. There is an Islamic critique of capitalism, which is not the Marxist critique. And it plays a major role. And it's unknown to most people in the West. The Marxist critique is known to everybody. Exploitation, particularly within the secondary sector, which was the one that fascinated Marx, since his life coincided with its colossal growth. Between the owners of the means of production and those who can only sell their labor. The Islamic critique is different. It's between seller and buyer of anything. Demanding that the relation between seller and buyer is a human relation with close human contact. And to buy something from somebody, just picking up the product, putting it on a belt, playing, paying with a card, hardly no eye contact. How do you do? How are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you? Being the maximum. Well, I can tell you, in the Western capitalist world, some clients are given the Islamic treatment. And the Islamic treatment is that you sit down, you talk, you become friends, you exchange photos, even if you're only buying a carpet. The birthday of your wife, or whatever it might be, and what your children are doing, well, if you go to any decent bank, you will find a door with nothing written on it. It's the door for good clients. Now, a good client has a couple of zeros that depends on the currency, as a minimum on his account. It's the zeros that count, not the rest. The good client is given the Islamic treatment. Could you imagine a civilization? It's not that they also they don't have it's not that they don't have supermarkets, it's not that they are not like us also corruptible. But having a longing for humanity to come along with buying selling. That doesn't mean that Islam is not capitalist, but it's a different type of capitalism. And much of the conflict we have is about exactly this issue. I usually give as exercise when I have workshops about this. Design a supermarket with Islamic thinking. 
designed that. Okay, you can try to solve it yourself. Capitalism plays into it, but I'll end by uh, they play into each other. And of course, capitalism plays into the man energy factor. Man energy has to do with terrorism, state terrorism. State nation has to do with terrorism, state terrorism. Because the United Nations being totally unable to solve conflicts between state and non-dominant nations. They can solve conflicts and contributed immensely when it came to liberating states from colonialism. But not the second stage of giving autonomy to non-dominant nations within. Like Eritrea, Ethiopia. Like Ogaden, Ethiopia. Like the parts of Somalia or whatever you would like to pick up. Now, they play all into each other, and the nations have terrorism as their methodology, created dialectically by us, and they in turn then contributing to the fascistization of other countries. I think better solve it. Federalism and confederalism are good formulas. I tried that myself in Sri Lanka without success. I had considerably more success in Peru, Ecuador, and other places. That doesn't mean the formula is invalid. Now, what do these six conflicts have in common? Could there be that there are some common factors that you could look at? And if I should nominate three common factors I would say capitalism US UK and men the male gender of which I myself am a specimen does that mean that getting rid of capitalist men with US UK nationality would help well, it would be three flies with one stroke, but let me first give some reasoning behind it. Capitalism is a transportation system of wealth from the bottom to the top. Don't expect that that can last. The fact that state socialism in Soviet Union didn't work does not validate capitalism. As the Americans say, two wrongs don't make one right. There's a search all over the world. One of the most interesting ones is in Latin America. The nine countries exiting from the World Bank and challenging the International Monetary Fund. Don't reduce that to a problem of the psychology of Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez, incidentally, never said that he had read the book by Noam Chomsky. He said that he smelt the sulfur from George Bush. The Satan was here yesterday and so on. Which is not a very wise remark from a head of state about another. Uh, there's something wrong about his terminology. I can understand the intention, but not the terminology. Do you know when he was waving a book, which book he was talking about? You can check US, UK press, you can Google it. It was said that he said Noam Chomsky, who unfortunately passed away. It was John Kenneth Galbraith, the affluent society. 
New York Times was wise enough to get the Spanish original. And he had passed away a couple of months earlier. Because New York Times called Noam Chomsky and asked him whether he had passed away, which he denied. <laughs> and that made him curious about what actually was said. Now, why was he so fascinated with Galbraith? Because of public poverty and private affluence, the famous book. And as a 19-year-old teenager, he said, that shall never happen in my country. Also pay some attention to the fact that this Chavez who pays attention to democracy, not those who want to kill him or want to get rid of him by other means, like a golpe militar. Now, he didn't always do that. I'm not coming to his unlimited defense. I'm just saying that there is a creation of new economies right now. So, capitalism, no doubt, is one factor challenging it, at least making it equitable between regions. And that's happening right now. We are going to have regions which all will have their own currency. There is a euro already. I don't know what the Islamic currency will be called, the Mecca or whatever. I don't know. We have a ruble. All that is missing is a union where Chechnya has the same autonomy as Netherlands in the European Union. I think Putin is working in that direction, but it will take some time. We'll get a currency in the African Union. The currency for the Latin American Union will probably be a Bolivar. And the currency for the part of the world run in yuan and rupee. I have concocted the word for it. I should patent it. Yuppie! <laughs> Let's see what happens. If it happens, a little commission to me. <laughs> what do I mean when I say that US-UK is in it? <clears throat> the center of jungle capitalism is in US-UK and was initiated by the Thatcher-Reagan revolution. The capitalism with no holds barred. Thatcher Reagan. They had good arguments. Bureaucracy was stolid, stale. So were trade unions. But the solution to that would have been to change bureaucracy and the trade unions. Not to dip that portion of humanity into disastrous misery. The US-UK has very much to do with state terrorism. And state terrorism is the post-modern way of warfare. The modern way of warfare was military against military. With ever-increasing more weapons. So terrifying that the military preferred to kill civilians. Since they couldn't retaliate. Who kills more civilians wins. In order to kill US and UK civilians, you have to get some killing done in US-UK. Were you surprised? You can only be surprised if you don't know history. There will be more to come, unless these things are solved. I indicated to you the Sapotero way. When it comes to being very, very negative to genuine federalism, both US and UK play major roles.
You may say United States of America is a federation. It isn't. It's a fake one. It's the fake one which you can read by the straight lines. A real one gives nations autonomy. You didn't give autonomy to a quadrangle or a rectangle. And who is it who draws straight lines? Graduates from LSE, Oxford and Cambridge, when they become colonial officers. Rulers rule by means of rulers. It's the only language in the world where the instrument for drawing straight lines and for ruling is the same word, only in English. You don't find it in any other language, I've checked. (laughs) Interesting. Now, could it be that at Eton and Harrow they had an excess of Euclidean geometry? Look at what I teach. Draw your conclusions. Well, I can go on with that one. I'll come to the male factor. Yes, there is something wrong about men. First of all, we account for about 95, 96, maybe 98% of the violence in the world. That's too high to be neglected. Secondly, When men are not violent, they tend to work with the brain instead. And they create fantastic deductive systems with one axiom at the top, like national interest, human rights, human security. It changes every five years or something of the kind. And then they draw conclusions from that one, deductive exercises. Men are deductive, women are seductive. I prefer the latter. (laughs) Now... Having said that, terrorism state terrorism. Those who exercise the violence in most cases are male. When it comes to the way of running capitalism and nature, I'm not saying that women are totally ignorant of it and totally innocent. They are participating in it. But most of the big things are run by men. The compassion with nature is minimal. If now men play such a role, what can one do about it? Uh, The most practical solution would be to give men monoamino oxidase pills. And if you don't know what that is, it's because it's a well-known secret that is quite important and it is also spelled M-A-O monoamine oxidase and what I say now is slightly facetious but not quite facetious if you can eliminate a major catastrophe by ultrasound then look at what monoamine oxidase does to the human body it's a so called blocker of aggression stimulating proteins it has a blocking effect Women have more of that blocker than men. That reduces women a little bit from a moral stance of purity to MAO excess. excess. Now, MAO has nothing to do with Mazadong. Let me just make that very clear from the beginning. It is a hormone. 
So what happened then to the model purity of women? Well, it's still there. But MAO is a good help. Would MAO pills for men help? Well, would they be willing to take it? Would men be willing to see themselves as problems? I am not sure that I know the answer to that one. But I just wanted to play it out. And you can then say, and I'll give the answer to that, watch yourself, Professor Galtung, you look to us like some kind of man and an older one. I am actually 77. So what, are you, what is this kind of flirting with young women? What's that about, actually? What's that about? What is it? What is it? Actually, you are out. What are you looking for? Well, I'll tell you, you're all wrong. I am actually a charming young woman, only disguised as Johan Galtung. <laughs> that you didn't expect to hear. Thank you. Spark uh, discussion. Thank you uh, very much for a very stimulating um, and uh, quite amusing uh, lecture. Um, what I'm going to do is take uh, questions in groups of three. Okay, so just the first three who um, uh, catch my eye. Questions from the audience? That's you guys. Up there. Okay, one. Anybody else? Are we going to get to group of three? Two, three. Okay. First up there, and then two and three. Okay. Um, I realize... Can you use the mic? Yeah. Please? Oh. Hello. Um, I realize you may have constrained yourself for time uh, constraints, but just a question about another conflict, maybe, uh, man against nature, which I think may be a little bit more complicated, is the issue of overpopulation, which people are talking about, which obviously raises issues of who should be allowed to reproduce, not, and kind of capacity of the earth to hold people. And I was wondering if you could comment on that as a problem or a coming conflict, which we may be having. Uh, good evening, Professor Galto. My question is regarding um, the economic topic which you're talking about and your solutions to world poverty. Um, you compared capitalism and communism and gave some uh, solutions, but my question is regarding the feasibility of those solutions in the near future, 10, 15 years possibly, and uh, your opinion regarding the UN Millennium Program for re Reducing Poverty. And such, are they in any way helpful? Millennium Development um, My question is, why do you think that at times when people have easier access uh, to information about different religions, are we seeing a radicalization of religions on a global scale? Why are we seeing a for excellent commentary questions. Let me start with the first one. Religion is a language in which to articulate not necessarily religious problems. If you don't have other languages, you might use that one. Don't expect people to talk social science speak, sociologies and things of that kind. And the more desperate the situation, the more will you hear strong religious vocabulary. 
The US is to a large extent in its imperial construction up against the wall. The more it is in that situation, the more will you hear strong religious talk. Now when it comes to the millennium goals, you can forget about them under global capitalism. It's not the slightest chance. Because of the enormous wealth transported upwards. I gave the image of the Coca-Cola and the cigarette before you die at the bottom and the private submarine at the top. It's a totally, completely indecent system. And the only way of changing it is to reverse the roles, which I'm less sure of, and or to cut the transportation chain, which I'm more sure of. Both of them are going on in the world right now. When it comes to the first one, yes, overpopulation is certainly a factor. But it's not so easy to know what overpopulation is. There's a famous Australian economist who has calculated the carrying capacity of the earth in terms of human beings to 40 billion. We are six and a half right now. But then he says two things. You have to populate empty territory. Isn't that much in the British Isles? It's a lot in Norway. We have 4.5 million, could easily be 15, 20. It's an enormous amount in Russia. It's an enormous amount of empty land in the USA. And incidentally, in Australia. There are overpopulated countries and underpopulated countries. So if you equalize that, it might be one formula. The second formula would be equity inside the economies. If you look at what percentage at the top consumes what percentage of depletable material, you find a Lorentz curve of absurd inequality. If you had more equity and yet kept it at a reasonable level, you would again improve the chances. So I'm not debating the point that there is such a thing as overpopulation. I'm just relativizing it a little bit. Okay, right. Another round of uh, questions. One here. Two, okay, three in the uh, on the lower floor. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit confused because you've heavily criticized global capitalism almost, I think, without mentioning the word socialism. So I wanted to ask you where you stood on that. You made references to Chavez and, um, I mean, perhaps just more explicitly, where do you stand on attempts to create socialism that are going on now in Latin America? Or if you could clarify again perhaps what you meant by decoupling from the global economy and some of the other things you were talking about that I'm still unclear exactly what you meant. Um, good evening. Uh, my question is about uh, the viability of. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to answer, uh, ask right now. <laughs> go on, go on, go on. <laughs> of um, sort of having federations all over, um, as in uh, of having EU-style blocks in different parts of the world, especially since um, a few years ago. Uh, Jamal Nasser's ideas of pan-Arabism completely collapsed due to power struggles within the Union. Um, do you think the world is ready to have... Mm -hmm. 
So it has, how, how, um, how likely is federal to make a distinction? Hi, thank you. What role can dialogue play in transferring power to the grassroots? <laughs> okay, all right. Fairly simple one. Excellent. Thanks again. <clears throat> Let me start from the beginning. In the choice between capitalism and socialism, I would be in favor of third, fourth, fifth possibility. I'm against both of them. Uh, you see, if you think that you have only two possibilities, you have a very poor menu, intellectually and politically. I would advise you to get out of that. Let me immediately indicate to you three others. One, traditional economy, very local, village market-based, barter-based, exchange-based, based on sustenance, and direct contact. Uh, I think that was the way humanity survived to a very large extent. Let us say the last 10,000 years after the Neolithic revolution of planting seeds in the ground and planting seeds into animals, let animals and plants grow and you've got farming. And they were concentrated usually in habitats called villages and there was exchange. It was not an unsuccessful system. Now point two, you have mixed forms, public-private sector combined, known as social democracy, mixed economies. We had that in the Nordic countries up till the Thatcher-Reagan revolution. From 1985 we started abolishing it. The high point was, let us say, late 60s, early 70s. An enormous amount of equity, satisfaction of basic needs, free education available for everybody, but it was the same education. It came at the cost of homogeneity. There were costs. Now that problem could be solved by keeping the welfare state and increasing the diversity. But that was not the way the road traveled. Fifth, the Japanese formula of combining socialism and capitalism in one extremely strong combination, extremely strong, unknown in the West. There are elements of it. Now, this was the root of the Japanese success in the 70s and the 80s and provoked a consternation ideologically and politically in the US, so they were forced out of it and forced into the private capitalist corner. Now one example of combining the state and the private sector is China. And again, if you have the energy to read Hu Jintao's speech, you will see exactly what I mean in terms of the state intervening when the private sector has gone too far, as he says. They have changes every nine years in China according to my study of it. There are those who think it's every 10 years. I'm a nine-year person, every nine years. I predicted in year 1992, no, no, it was in the, late, in the mid-80s, that there would be a major change in year 2007. came in October with a speech by Hu Jintao. There are certain regularities in societies too, you see. 
I won't say they are iron laws. And the moment human beings start knowing these laws, it's in their power to counteract it. We can come on top of the laws. Not always. Ask a physicist who is falling down from the leaning power in Pisa where he has conducted experiments about the relation between distance and time to arrive at a parabola, which Galilei never did, but let us say he did that. Now, when the physicist himself is falling, what is his relation to the law he constructed? Probably negative. Well, uh, what kind of methods does he have at his disposal? You may say not very much. Well, do we know that for sure? Or do we keep it up? Now, I have indicated that there is much more to it than those two. Much, much more. Now, changing the current system is partly changing capitalism, partly changing into other systems, adding to capitalism. By decoupling, I mean exactly that. You decouple from the division of labor imposed by us by Manchester capitalism from 1800 onwards. Never give up a single piece of raw material, never import any processed goods. Do the processing yourself, pocket the value added. Maybe some others would like to do exactly that. And I think probably the most reactionary doctrine you can find in the world is David Ricardo's comparative advantages. If you believe in that one, you have sold yourself to Satan. <coughs> I can smell some sulfur. <laughs> the other way is that you make your own system. What is happening in Latin America now is not that they abolish capitalism, but they do two major things. They make it basic needs oriented. You see, the idea of having, I don't know how many Cuban physicians and nurses and social workers and sewage engineers working in the slums in Latin America and being paid in oil from Venezuela and the other countries compensating Venezuela. It's a triangular process, basic needs oriented. Why do they have so many physicians? I'll tell you why. Because of the sanctions. They knew they couldn't import any raw material. There was nothing they could process. They had no industrial capacity. But we have human beings. So let's process them to ever higher levels. There are few places you can travel to with such a high level of academic performance as Havana, Cuba. Travel to the science city outside Havana and you'll be treated to something. So I'm just saying, it's again, you see, dialectics. Things don't necessarily work the way those who initiate the action think they will. Because these poor people who did it, they're trained at such places as Georgetown and George Washington and such places. What can they know about the world? They're just PhDs. A little bit of wisdom might make lots of difference. So you can turn capitalism upside down. You can decouple from it in terms of division of labor or making your own system, and you can introduce other systems. I have a book coming out myself very soon called um, 
life-enhancing, no, a theory of economics, a theory of life-enhancing economics. And it is dedicated to the end of killing economics, which is the one we have. Economic system that kills. Now, my formula is not original at all, but it is a composite of 14 different ideas. One of them is domesticated capitalism. And just like you compose your energy profile, you compose your economic profile. And you're very unwise if you go in for only one. If you do that, you're probably trained in a monotheistic religion. And you probably take the first commandment too seriously. You should not have other gods than me. You should not have other economies than this one, and things of that kind. And that's a Western predicament to some extent. Now, it is absolutely correct that the effort to make a union out of Syria and Egypt collapsed. There are many reasons for that. That that one collapsed is not the end of federalism. Let me first say that federalism, fake or non-fake, that 25 of the 192 countries in the world, 193 members of the UN, that are federations, and 40% of humanity live in them. There are two countries that have been dissolved recently, Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. That was enforced federalism in both cases. Now, we are talking not about enforced federalism. We are talking about a combination of high-level autonomy for the nations participating and consociation in the sense that they run a common sector together, probably proportionately. We are talking about that. The formula works miracles in the countries I mentioned. You can see how India, when it arrived at linguistic pluralism and federalism some time ago, liberated itself from an enormous amount of violence and conflict and was ready to jump into the high productivity it has now. You can also see that it generates more inequity, hence the Naxalite revolt. And the Naxalite revolt will increase till India embarks on a Hu Jintao-type road. I'm not saying those solutions are not without problems. If you look at the map, you will find that Egypt and Syria are not exactly neighbors. You will also find, if you look into history, that they were the seats of two different dynasties, the Omayyads, and the Fatimids. There could be historical bagage there, which is not very positive. In other words, it may be that the more likely project is to involve them all. The 56 countries of Islam from Morocco to Mindanao. 56. Member number 57 of OIC is India because of the 160 million Muslims inside India. 1.3 billion altogether, 1.4 billion Chinese, add up one point, a couple of them, and as a matter of fact, if you add up the whole thing, you find that 5% of humanity is US, 16% is West, 
22% is white, which should mean that 78% are non-white. So imagine now that you regionalize the Islamic community and you democratize the United Nations. Then we would have an interesting world where things could happen. It means that Anglo-America will have to step down from the throne on which they still think they are seated. As a matter of fact, the nature of that throne comes clear to the world today, reading the present inquest going on, which is fascinating reading. I hope Harold Pinter will write a sufficient number of plays about that one, about Royal Butler, confectionery or whatever it is. Dialogue is a fantastic approach. Dialogue is not the same as debate. Debate is a battle with words. Debattre, battre in French, which means to beat. Dialogue means by means of the word, enriching each other by means of the word. But it is not the way to transfer power to those lower down alone. The way to transfer that power is for them to take it. To grab it. To grab it peacefully, non-violently, consolidate their own systems, show that they can do it, they can make it. Decoupling first, then recoupling. And that's the way it is done again and again and again and again. And that is the way every human being has done it. Every human being has been through a revolution called puberty. And puberty consisted not only in dialogue, if I remember it correctly. I can tell you a little Galtung family story. <laughs> My sister number two was a leading psychologist in Norway. She was the one who introduced school psychology in Norway. And my father was a politician, was deputy mayor of Oslo, and once mayor of Oslo. And I remember a sort of little bit difficult situation with my second daughter telling her parents, you two sitting there, you have made all the mistakes that it's possible to make raising children, plus some new mistakes that are unknown, but I will make them known. So we were sitting there, a little bit sad, and you know, then she left, and she had a door slamming technique. Also, her backstroke with the door was fantastic, absolutely unbelievable. So we were sitting there, a little bit saddened, all of us. Then suddenly, she remembered the last thing my father said, because after she had fired off that, my father said, "Well, if all that is true, how come that the result became so good?" <laughs> Now, there's the old foxy politician at work, you see. <laughs> uh, of course, he was totally right. So suddenly we heard a key in the door. She came in, embraced my father and kissed him. So, you see, decoupling, recoupling. <laughs> it doesn't always happen as quickly as that. But you have all the elements in what you said in that little story. Great. I think um, we'll, we'll bring it to a close uh, uh, right now and thank um, uh, Professor Galton very much uh, for um, uh, his enlightening uh, lecture, thought-provoking uh, lecture and answers to the questions. Uh, there is going to be a um, uh, reception now in the... Excuse me.
Senior, senior dining room, which is on the uh, fifth floor of this building, uh, to which you are all invited. Uh, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Thank you.